Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wildcard Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. Welcome to Industry Focus. Today is Tuesday, April 13th, and I'm the host of this consumer goods episode, Emily Flippin. Today, I'm joined by Motley Fool analyst Asit Sharma to talk about our expectations for the future of the fitness industry, and in particular, how investors can play this trend. We have businesses all the way from the at-home fitness pure plays to the person who believes that the universe is going to revert back to normal as soon as everybody's vaccinated. So hopefully, we'll have a little bit of something for everyone in the show. Emily, what a fit, fitting topic you've chosen for uh mid to, to late spring. As I'm looking out my windows, we're recording. It's a beautiful afternoon and uh, would be great for those of you fitness buffs. Maybe you're listening to this with your headphones on, taking a jog or something of that nature. Yeah, I, I feel bad because I, I can always motivate myself to work out, but I can never motivate myself to work out outside. And that's somehow justifiable when it's cold and I'm like, oh, I could just stay in my apartment or go to the gym or, or do something indoors. But whenever it's beautiful outside, I'm always imposed with this feeling of immense guilt. You, know, you see people running, you see people going for walks. And man, I, I already don't leave my apartment now that I'm working remotely. <laughs> Now that I'm exercising for my apartment as well, I'm, I'm truly living in a box. <laughs> well, you know something, Emily? I, I'm sort of the opposite. I spend a lot of time outside, but I will say that uh, I've not been exercising much, even though I've been outside. But you've chosen an interesting basket of stocks. There's something for everyone. There, There is a stock for those who like to stay indoors. There's a stock for those who like to get outside. So that's what makes uh, this basket today very interesting. To me. And why don't we start with probably the one that everybody clicked on this episode or is tuning in live to listen to. They fully expect to hear this business. We talked about it a lot before in Industry Focus, and that's the purest play of them all, the at-home fitness stock to end at-home fitness stocks. It's Peloton. Um, I'm still a shareholder of this business. I'm still a fan of this business, but I am an owner of one of their competitive products, Nordic Track. Um, I, I think I'm biased here because I really do like my Nordic Track a lot. Well, the thing about the Nordic Track is it's been around for a long, long time. It has a great brand name. You know the product's going to be well made, and you're going to have a piece of equipment that's durable, you enjoy getting on. I think Nordic Track is, you know, probably in in my estimation an underestimated piece of exercising equipment peloton as far as the popular imagination is concerned has stolen a lot of mind share over the past couple of years it's interesting that you just pulled out mind share cuz I think that's really accurate to describe what peloton's like in terms of its consumer appeal i refer to my nordic track as a Peloton. That's how ubiquitous the name has become. But when you look at how the the business and management defines their addressable markets, they still have less than 10% market share of the at-home fitness market into what they believe is their addressable market. And that's out of an already pretty narrowed market. If you talk, look at how they break down their TAM, they start with all the people who have a household income of a certain level who are interested in fitness. And you would think, okay, 
that's their TAM. But I like that management actually trims that down by nearly a tenth into what is just that core base of consumers that they actually believe would buy a product at today's prices. And even within that group, they still have less than 10% penetration into their market. So it's it has a lot of mind share, but when you get into the nitty gritty of the numbers, they don't have as much market share as you would expect for somebody that is, or for a company that is that ubiquitous. Yeah, Emily, a couple of things come to mind uh, as you discuss that. One is I do also like the way that management trims down that total addressable market. So many times we see companies that start with the widest possible range of customers or addressable market, and you know they're never going to capture everything because the, the product doesn't even really hit every part of, of the market. So management at Peloton helps you as an investor sort of understand where they're going and where the sweet spot is. And I would say they provide a, a bunch of metrics that are really um, appropriate to how this brand can grow. As for that market share, sure, you know, maybe they are not going to ever capture the whole market or even 50% of the market. But over time, if they go to something that's, I don't know, low double digits, with the type of loyalty that the, this company seems to just, with every customer that they seem to generate, I can see them being a really solid investment for years to come. I see that total uh, customer lifetime value as being one of the key parts to a bull thesis here. And, you know, to, as we as we mentioned, <laughs> this idea of uh, customer value, revenue per customer is, is a pretty big deal. And I love the way that you've, you've broken this up as you, we were trading ideas. You were pointing out that revenue, it's currently 80% equipment, but those are high ticket items from 1900 to about 4300 bucks and they've got this subscription business which is uh, 20% of revenues it's $39 per month for connected equipment so that's equipment that is uh, connected you have uh, let's say video that you can interact with and it's 13 month if you $13 per month if you just want a digital subscription and don't own the equipment i think this spells a lot of opportunity for the, the company and I think as users really buy into this idea of exercising regularly outside of the pandemic, when we leave it behind, this could benefit the company long term. And we've talked a lot about Peloton and their economics prior, so I'll, I'll do my best not to drone on to our listeners about it any more than we already have. But I do think a critical metric to gauge that lifetime value will be their churn rate. And Peloton has done a great job of keeping their churn rate relatively low. Right now, it's around 0.62%, which is pretty outstanding. But still, that does mean that people are churning. And this is an expensive piece of equipment. So you wouldn't expect to have a churn rate that is as high as the, the subscription box companies right? that we talk about a lot that you can jump in and out of. Either way, that churn rate has consistently fallen since Peloton's been reporting publicly. So that will be a critical metric that I think investors should watch if they are interested or are invested in Peloton. Yeah. One um, metric that I really like myself is how the fitness subscription workouts are growing. So they just reported their fiscal year um, 2021 second quarter fitness subscription workouts. So connected fitness subscription. These grew 303% year over year to 98 million. And the average 
monthly workout has now exceeded 21. So people who were doing about 12 workouts per month last year, this time last year, are now doing almost double that. And to me, this sort of speaks to that uh, brand power and just ability for this company to take its unit economics and build them over time. So I, I think that while we talk about Peloton a, a lot on this show, and it is sort of top of mind for many investors in this category of at-home fitness, there's still a lot to learn about it going forward. And it would be easy to, to assume that we know everything about how this company can grow. I think it's still early innings. Um, and I feel they've got a lot of optionality. So my my message here, summary message on Peloton is to, if you're interested in the companies, sort of stay excited and, and keep trying to understand um, how these metrics are going to pan out. It really has not been a public company for very long. And I still see lots of promising things every time they report. And before we move on, and again, I, I just said I wouldn't harp on it, but I have to add one more thing before we move on. And that's that there might be a lot of optionality in Peloton's business that investors who are really skeptical, like myself, uh, may overlook. And I think a lot of that does have to do with partnerships for things like classes, the partnerships they get to have unique and proprietary music by big artists on their platform. These sorts of things lend itself to say that Peloton can be more than just a bike company at some point in the future. They're not there yet, but don't discount the optionality that can exist with having a really strong brand because I think it's easy to kind of take and extrapolate what we see happening today to what the future will look like. And eh, Peloton might surprise some people. Yeah. My last note on that, uh, which is related to this optionality, is that the company just acquired a manufacturer called Precore. So Precore is really the largest uh, equipment manufacturer. This is commercial fitness products that the company uh, turns out, not just bikes. So Peloton may be able over time to get into this extended market for various types of equipment and connect them one by one. So it'll take a while to play out a few years, but we shouldn't overlook, yes, its ability to extend beyond the way most of us visualize it now, which is that one piece of equipment, the bike. And for investors who are still maybe a little too skeptical to to want to buy Peloton outright, but are looking to get some exposure to the at-home fitness industry, there's another business that they could potentially consider investing in. It's not quite a pure play for at-home fitness, but Affirm, I believe the ticker is AFRM, uh, is a recently public payment processing business that provides uh, buy now, pay later services. And a large majority portion of their sales actually come from Peloton. So you get a little bit of exposure to the upside of the increase in Peloton bike sales while also having a diversified enough business that kind of exists on its own. Yeah, for sure. And, and here's a company, let's call it an impure play on this theme, but they're growing very quickly. Their gross merchandise volume in their most recently reported quarter grew about 55% year over year to $2.1 billion dollars. And they claim they've got about 4.5 million active consumers as of the end of last year. That's also 50% plus growth. So this is a way that investors who like this space can participate from growth in the total industry without having to get too tied into one theme, which might go sour. So if you think Peloton as a theme could go south, maybe there will be other competitors in connected fitness and subscription-based uh, exercising 
this would be an interesting play because it, it's agnostic as to which platform will eventually uh, win out. The only thing, as Emily mentioned, is they, they do have a concentration right now in Peloton, but I think the plan is to extend beyond that uh, over the next few years. And it is. And if you look at where their sales are coming from, while around a quarter, I believe, of their sales are from Peloton, they actually saw a material acceleration in the last quarter from GMV, the gross merchandise value that was generated without Peloton. So even without Peloton, at least there's some acceleration of other customers. It kind of reminds me of, not right now at the moment, but if Peloton were to leave, I could see this being a business that's kind of like Twilio, when Twilio lost Uber as one of their main customers. There's a lot of worry about the fact that Uber was a significant portion of Twilio's revenue, but Twilio still went on to be a really relevant and important communication service provider, even without hosting Uber. Uh, so yeah, anyway, interesting one to look at, but admittedly, not as not as pure play as the ones we're talking about today. Well, going back to pure plays. Now, this is a company that is, like Peloton, still exciting, but it's also sort of a blast from the past for some investors because this ticker has had its ups and downs. I would say it is cresting right now. Investor interest is high, but I can remember just a few years ago, this was a stock that many investors just didn't want to look at anymore. So, what, which which ticker am I talking about, Emily? It's Lululemon, and it's yeah. funny because when we think about Lululemon, while it's, it certainly has its ups and downs, I mean, this is a complicated company. Its brand has remained relatively resilient, even while investors' opinions have periodically soured as a result of poor management. And out of all the businesses we have on our list today, I actually think this is the one that I'm most excited about. And maybe not for the reasons that investors may think. Lululemon uh, made a big purchase of an at-home fitness company, Mirror, last year. It's I wouldn't quite call it a Peloton competitor because essentially what they sold was a big convertible TV mirror to do things like body weight fitness as opposed to the the intense maybe bike exercises that a Peloton customer has. I'm sure there's some overlap between people who would own both a mirror and a Peloton, but that's the kind of pure play exposure they have to at-home fitness. I really think that the more I dug into this business, I am so excited just for what Lululemon is, even if you take mirror out of the equation. And mirror is great, but mirror is only going to generate, I believe, around $250 million in expected revenue for 2021. So it's only a drop in the top line of what Lululemon's going to do this year. And if you look at their growth, I'm just surprised by how quickly this company is growing, especially internationally. It's funny, Emily. Lululemon had some really aggressive targets for 2023, which included international growth, included their e-commerce business. Uh, they have such a big boost that they've been able to take out of COVID that they've already achieved, I think, most of their 2023 goals in e-commerce, and they're well on their way with international expansion. And the interesting story is part of this involves opening new stores. So this is a company that has a lot of white space outside of North America in terms of its perception as a, almost like a, a very high-end brand. This was also the, the company everyone knew as a manufacturer of yoga style clothing, and they've made a great pivot away from sort of this athleisure type uh, descriptor that most 
investors used to associate with them to something that's a little more contemporary. Now I think their emphasis is on technical clothing, extreme fabrics. I think they've got uh, a brand called Lux Stream. <laughs> I hope I pronounced that right. So I, when I see this, it reminds me of other companies which were at the cusp of either staying in a trough. So speak, let's pick up this metaphor again of, of, of being in a trough versus cresting, but then really understanding where the brand needed to go, both from a brand perspective and a manufacturing perspective. So I think they've made that transition. And you're quite right, Emily, if you look at where the opportunity lies, it's overseas and it is in several markets. They actually differentiate China from Asia Pacific. So that just shows you how important China is as a market. It's its own region. And I feel that Lululemon here, if you have given up on the stock maybe a few years ago, you'll be surprised at some of the targets that management has laid out and also the uptake of, of the new products. They're doing quite well. If you look at uh, their brands, and I love how you mentioned that that Lululemon is really a brand play, not an athleisure play. Um, and you extrapolate that to their acquisition of Mir, I think it starts to make more sense. They spent half billion dollars or so to purchase Mir. And a lot of investors were skeptical because they thought to themselves, okay, are you trying to be Peloton? I mean, the at-home fitness industry is is really competitive. Why are you making this acquisition right now? Are you going to spend a lot of money trying to get people to work out in their apartments? And I think that's missing the bigger picture of Lululemon, which is proving out the Lululemon brand as a lifestyle brand as opposed to an apparel brand. And if you look at a lot of their initiatives, I think they're starting to execute on that. They have Addition to Mirror, which is, like I said, not a big top line mover, but a big lifestyle brand mover and making Lululemon a known thing. They're actually adding a lot of these mirror stores into the physical Lululemon stores themselves, giving people the opportunity to experience at-home fitness plus Lululemon. But they also have a lot of really ambitious goals. Uh, They have apparently goals, I didn't know this, uh, to release their own footwear line. Again, lifestyle apparel and doubling their men's business by 2023. So really big, challenging, lofty goals that don't have to do with, oh, everybody has to have a mirror in their house, but it's everybody has to know and associate with the Lululemon brand wherever that meets them. For some people, that might be having a mirror in their house. For other people, it might be yoga pants. And for even more people, it could be footwear. It could be men's outfits. They want to prove out optionality in their business. And I think they're doing that pretty well. I think they are. And I wouldn't be surprised if Mirror starts to achieve a really fast run rate. So you mentioned that they are going to generate $250 million in revenue this year. I think the estimate is for about $275 million in fiscal 2021. Now, that doesn't seem like a big jump, but with the stores within stores and the fact that Mirror itself is incredibly sticky, I think that they have an opportunity to turn this into a brand that could generate four to $500 million a year for them in the next, um, I'm going to guess, you know, seven to 10 years. Now, that's not a really, really like super fast expansion rate, but it's significant. And as you say, that extends the way people perceive the brand. On the idea of, of how sticky Mirror is, the CEO, Calvin McDonald, said on the latest earnings call that this small company has more live classes across more workouts than any other product in the marketplace. And I like that per household, more than two users use uh, Mirror once 
people buy. So um, married couples, families with children, they're averaging more than two users per family. The average user takes six different workouts each month. So I think that Lululemon is on to something similar to Peloton in that the idea of fitness and connected fitness is going to be a much bigger trend than many investors realize. It seems that in, in early innings, once people subscribe to these services, they really love them and, and find it hard to give up. And, and of course, I can see that as someone who runs. Once you get past those really hard first six weeks and your blood becomes more oxygenated and the endorphins start really flowing every time you, you get up to speed, you don't want to stop. The hard part is getting there. The hard part is those first, I think, six weeks of any type of workout. But Emily, you, you work out quite a bit. I mean, you would attest to that as well, right? I would. And I was just thinking to myself that uh, I, I would feel a lot less guilty, I think, having an unused mirror product in my household than having an unused Peloton. The Peloton has no other purpose. It sits there as a constant reminder about the fact that you haven't worked out all week or all month or in many months, however long it is. Whereas mirror converts to a mirror when you're not using it. You can almost sell yourself on the idea that this has some utility outside of me just getting a good workout in. I don't know if that makes it more compelling or less compelling, but I feel like that phenomenon must exist. No, I, I am sure. Except for those few people who see a Peloton and think, you know, if I'm not using this, I can hang my clothes on it. I don't know. Maybe <laughs> that's some, some dual purpose there. I them. may be there in a couple months. Don't tempt me. <laughs> All right. So moving, moving on to a very interesting choice that you have. It's a company that I uh, used to follow every quarter and I still, I don't know, I still have a soft spot for this. And maybe your research has convinced me to take a closer look. You wanted to talk about Garmin, symbol G-R-M-N. What's the story here, Emily? I did, and I, I wish I had a better story. I don't have a long history following this company or using their products, but I'm aware of it because Motley Fool advisor Seth Jason is a huge fan of Garmin, both as an investment and as a product. And he's also an amazing runner and, and generally just wonderfully in shape. So if you want to feel really bad about how little you work out, all you have to do is talk to Seth. But because he does have such experience, I take his opinions uh, very wholeheartedly when he talks about products. And one of the products he raves about, and he says it has its issues, but everything does. But one of those products are garments. And he does ha say that there's this insider joke around ultra marathon runners that goes something like, if you find me collapsed at the ditch alongside the trail, pause my Garmin for me, okay? <laughs> so this is something that more, I want to say pro athletes necessarily, but people like Seth, people who are, maybe they don't do it as their, as their job, but they're also not casual once a day bikers like myself. They love Garmin products. You know, Garmin has been around for a while, but it is just experiencing really, really steady growth. And they have multiple categories that they can spread uh, their revenue from or, or extract growth from. Although arguably some of those are a little bit slower growth or, or even in the negative territory, but they're cyclical. They, they have sales that cross fitness, outdoor, aviation, marine, and even auto, of course, which used to be something people associated Garmin with more. But by far, I think fitness is now the most promising category with outdoor sort of close behind. 
And this is something for, again, for those of you who are listening today and you're of my ilk who like to be outside, this may be the product for you. Emily, you talked about that steady uh, growth in recent quarters. And for going forward, I, I wanted to point out this. So looking backward, they've had, I think, five consecutive years of revenue and operating income growth. But going forward, you put in our notes that sales are projected to keep growing even as we're leaving COVID behind or hopefully leaving COVID behind. They're looking at 10% growth in the fitness division next year on top of really strong growth from last year. Um, Why do you think that Garmin has remained so popular and and why do you think that uh, this product or this this set of products has so much potential going forward yeah well first of all you're going to get a chuckle Osset because as somebody who's followed this company for a long time in comparison to myself who had just started to look at it when when Seth started to talk about it I didn't even realize that Garmin had a legacy GPS auto unit I only associated Garmin with their wearable devices as kind of a higher end Fitbit. And I think part of the reason why growth is projected to continue even past 2020 into 2021 is because of the type of user who goes after Garmin wearable devices. Like I mentioned, they're people who tend to be a bit stickier, tend to be a little bit more loyalist to the brand than somebody who is casually, like myself again, like somebody who picks up a Fitbit and then promptly forgets about it for for six months. Um, So I think that's part of the reason why they're fueling growth. But they also do have, while while fitness is their fastest and and most growing segment, within that, it's more than just the wearable devices. It's all the add-on services they have as part of their devices. And they actually have a lot of data and a lot of analytics that they sell people who actively use Garmin devices. And it can be used for things from from casual runners or casual cyclers to people who would use Garmin devices in their professions. So I think it's an interesting business that does a pretty good job of upselling, if you will, consumer customers on the brand and then on the the analytics side. Yeah, I think that's a great answer. And you know, for me, I've, I've been impressed how the company has done just this. They've made that transition from being a device company to a company that has subscription components, that has these add-on services. You know, they just introduced their own, <laughs> it's not a bike. I'm not sure exactly what it is. It's an indoor trainer. They call it the Tax Boost, T-A-C-X. I'm not sure how you're supposed oh, to pronounce Oh, I didn't even this. know this. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's not a huge bit of their uh, forward revenue, but it is interesting in that they're getting also into indoor training this is a this trainer uses like a magnetic brake. It looks sort of like um, a cross between a transformer and and an indoor bike. I don't know how else to describe it. You can um, manipulate the shape to different sizes, and basically, it if you picture just a very small unit that you can pull up to a chair. Um, and sit in with two pedals. That that's more or less what it is. But it shows that the company is still innovating, and moving beyond the technology that provided a lot of cash flow in the early years. And speaking of cash flow, that's something that you really like about it, correct? 
Yeah, one of the things I was really surprised to see, especially for a business that does manufacture so much as Garmin does, is to see that they have 15-ish percent cash flow margins. So they're generating just a ton of cash flow. They're reinvesting, obviously, a lot of that back into their business, coming up with these new devices. But it's a highly profitable, really steady business that's posted nearly 60% gross margins for the past five-ish years. So it's a really steady cash producing business. And it's almost deceiving if you just go back and you look at some of the ratios of this business over time, but then also not taking into account the huge business transformation that's happened over the same time period away from cars and aviation into things like fitness and outdoors. Uh, It's amazing how they've maintained such impressive uh, margins while changing their business so dramatically. Yeah. I feel like management really has a handle on how to transition and keep growing in this industry. So of all the the companies that you picked today, the five companies, this was the one that I think I was most excited about. Uh, To see that you liked it sort of rekindled my interest in this company. I never purchased it, but it's one of those that just grows steadily (laughs) and uh, keeps expanding. So why not us just pick up a little few shares? You know, I think they'll do well. I I feel like we should keep an eye on this one and maybe schedule it for a full deep dive one day on industry focus because I feel like if we keep going, we could probably spend an entire show just dissecting Garmin's business. And because they do have so many different products, it would be quite the task to do that. So we should definitely keep an eye out. Hopefully it continues to perform pretty well and we can circle back. Perfect. Yeah, that sounds great. Um, You know, this next one that you've talked about, I must say that I was surprised by the choice because once in a while you'll bring up an obscure company, Emily, that I have never heard of. So I think this fits in that category. One of these that, um, yeah, I I really had to pull up the symbol, sort of read through the 10K report and figure out what this company is not having heard of it before, but it looks intriguing to me. So what is our next symbol? So I really wanted to talk about this business because Dan Klein, who's a former fool and frequent guest on Industry Focus Consumer Goods, on his Twitter account, uh, must be a week ago or so now, I can't quite remember how long ago it was, but on his Twitter account, he decided to hold a poll. And he had four mostly kind of fitness-related companies, um, and he asked, which one do you think is going to have the most steady well-known brand for the next 30 years, a really long time frame. And I actually picked Lululemon in this Twitter poll, uh, but by far the consensus was towards this company that we're going to talk about, which is Nike. Uh, The ticker symbol is NKE. I'm a little surprised. I can't say that I have the best opinions of Nike. Granted, I am not a big sports person. I'm not a big shoe person. And I think I mostly associate Nike with a lot of labor issues, I suppose, in developing countries. But there is something to say about the brand name of Nike. You can probably go anywhere in the world and say the word Nike, and people will know exactly what company you're talking about. For sure. And of course, I was being facetious in saying that I'd never heard of Nike before. Of course. I, that that yeah. must have gone right over my head, that comment. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I have I have memories, though, of being, I don't know, 10 or 11 years old and telling my mother that I didn't want anything but Nikes because those were the shoes to buy. And that's what all the kids were, were buying. And unfortunately, I went through a phase in my life when I was a kid of having to... to 
go along with the, the herd. And, and now my fashion is so bad, I clearly do not care anymore uh, what type of brands that I buy and wear. But for much of the world, this is an aspirational brand. And I have to say, Emily, if I weigh the scale truly over the last couple of years, I think I've become much more skeptical of, of Nike as well. Nike is, though, a fiercely competitive company. It's an extremely innovative company. We can't ignore that. And it has a lot of um, still experimentation with materials in its DNA left over from the days when Phil Knight founded the company. So I think this is a global business. If you are looking for, let's say, a very solid play, as Dan's survey probably indicated, that's going to be around and you want to um, round out your basket, so the true growth names in your basket, with a stable company that will slowly grow and, and should continue to appreciate year over year, maybe Nike is your choice. I will say in researching this episode, when I went to their homepage, they were very adamant. The first thing you see on Nike's homepage is, we are a growth company. It's almost like they're trying to tell investors, no, we're not stodgy. <laughs> we're, we're just like those little companies. But it's hard when you're so big and so global to pull that off year after year. I'm in the process of studying for level three of my CFA exams, and I'm just finished the unit over behavioral finance, which sounds easy, but is actually really challenging uh, because you realize how many of these these kind of heuristics that you bring out in your day to day analysis. So I'm saying this, realizing that maybe I'm getting a bit of framing bias, throwing out some keywords there, framing bias from management and how they talk about the business. But I do believe that Nike is this innovative company. It feels to me that they're constantly thinking about what's the new next new partnership, what's the next new product. Um, they throw a ton of ideas at the wall. They have the money, they have the resources to do that. And it really takes only one thing sticking for it to be a huge driver of growth. The big question mark for me with Nike is just the tr business transformation they've been over the past couple of years, uh, pulling off from third-party retailers. They pulled out of Amazon, but also a ton of other uh, retail locations, right, in-store retail locations in order to focus on its direct-to-consumer business. And the idea was that sales would probably decrease, right? A ton of places that they had distribution would no longer be selling Nike products, but margins should start to increase and control over the Nike brand should also increase, which long-term should build more pricing power. And we saw this start to happen in the most recent quarter. Nike's gross margins expanded by ne nearly 1.3%. Uh, really substantial gross margin expansion. Sales fell, although there are some other reasons for that. But it will be interesting to see if this strategy, this control over the Nike brand ends up being really beneficial long term. Yeah, it was sort of clouded by the pandemic because they had that wave of temporary store closures around the globe. And this long term view of this shift that we had now, the data, I think, is all messy. But one of the things that both Nike and Adidas are counting on, so Adidas, or for those of you who may be from other continents, some say Adidas. <laughs> I say Adidas. We'll just stick with what I'm comfortable with. <laughs> Both of these companies, global footwear giants, are trying to be more direct to consumer. And they're also building in a lot of customization in the, the DTC, direct to consumer ordering. So as you become... Uh, let's say the next generation of Nike adherents go back to those who are 
like me are now eight and 10 years older, but buying for the right reasons, maybe because they like the technology, uh, they like the feel of the shoes. And of course, they don't only do shoes. They're also in the, the bigger athleisure trend. But but as you can start with a pair of Nikes and customize it at a young age, it really is a path for you to become a lifelong customer. And this is one of the reasons why I think so many of um, Dan's followers probably voted for Nike because they understand where Nike is going in terms of innovation. So for my skepticism, and I think also the, the labor issues of years past, maybe in the back of many investors' minds, that, that is something that, that can bother you, bothers me. Uh, although ostensibly, they've, they've really cleaned up the, the act in their supply chain. You can see that Nike has a path to really avoid not just its own retail outlets, but those third-party stores, which have been sort of the core part of their revenue growth for so many years. And, and I think they'll do it. I think that they will become a much more profitable company than they already are, and, and they are they're very profitable to begin with. And I think cash flow will also improve, which will give them additional optionality in other spaces within the athletic market. But again, how fast can this company grow? And at what point do you start to get diminishing returns from this big shift into direct-to-consumer? Those would be sort of my long-term questions about their thesis. Again, bottom line, though, it's hard to to see this being an investment that's going to lose money if you buy Nike today. I think over the long term, it's just consistent, steady cash flow growth is your best friend in this industry and with an investment in Nike as well. And the last company we're going to talk about today isn't an at-home fitness company at all, actually. And what's interesting and, and you know, stark comparison to something like Nike, I would say they don't quite have the raving fan base that maybe Nike does. I could be wrong about that. But I will say this, my boyfriend and I recently toured around a couple of gyms. He was looking for a gym membership. I'm perfectly happy with my Nordic track bike. But as we were touring around, uh, the person who was showing us around, I believe it was LA Fitness, told us, I don't care where you go to the gym, just promise me you won't go to Planet Fitness. And you know what? That's the next company we're going to talk about today. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's a story here. So why not? I'm just curious before we really jump into Planet Fitness. She said, you can't throw the weights on the floor. They have a lunk alarm and the alarm will go off if you make too much noise. And I didn't tell her this at the time, but that's that's an appeal to me. (laughs) That sounds wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) You know, there there are a couple of things with going to a gym that bother me. The first is my scrawny physique. So I have to go in there and there's a bunch of buff fit people working out of both sexes. And the second is that clanging of heavy weights, which is further reinforcing how out of shape I am. And my problem was, of course, when I was younger, is I used to go to the gym and I would work out. Small diversion here, listeners, please bear with me. And I would do some exercises, upper body exercises. I would bench press, do some machines, and I'd run to the mirror to see if anything had changed. (laughs) Nothing had changed. (laughs) And so this was my pattern at the gym and it never really worked. And so as a result, I, you know, in my middle age, have the same scrawny physique that I had as a younger person in my 20s. And I always pause and try to tell people when I recollect this about myself, don't invest the way that I used to work out. So 
If you're investing, invest for the long term. Don't run to the mirror, i.e. don't check your portfolio every five minutes. <laughs> Try to make the right choices and uh, not look at them too often. So getting back to this though, I hate that sound, Emily. I hate it when really strong people are pulling up weights and dropping them because it just reminds me of how out of place I am. And and it's such sage advice you have about not constantly checking your physique, like your portfolio and Planet Fitness, a hundred percent caters to the person who isn't necessarily uh, trying to make a scene in the gym about how strong they are. And I realize there are people out there who are very fit who actually need to make noise when they lift weights. Good for you. Good. I'm I'm very happy for you. I'm not jealous at all. Everything's fine. But I and a lot of other people don't necessarily need to hear it. (laughs) And Planet Fitness knows that. But a lot of people might be listening and thinking to themselves, how is Planet Fitness have anything to do with at-home fitness. Clearly, their their growth story is just how many stores or how many locations they can open. And that's really true, which is why we said this basket today would have something for everyone. But they actually have a partnership with iFit alongside a business called Icon. And they have partnerships to help build out their own digital experience. So they've been investing a ton into their app, uh, pulling people into the Planet Fitness ecosystem by getting them involved digitally first. And even when they were locked down back in, I believe, May, April 2020, when the lockdowns first started to happen, they were trying to get people, even without paying anything for their Planet Fitness membership, to engage with at-home workouts over their app. And I love how management talks about that opportunity because management said, hey, we saw people coming into Planet Fitness who were doing workouts on their phone in a Planet Fitness. And they thought, well, that's an opportunity that we're just automatically losing, despite the fact that somebody is coming here to do those workouts. They should be using the Planet Fitness app, and that's exactly in the direction that they're going. I think that that's smart of them. And, and I also think that for Planet Fitness, they don't really need a solution like this uh, to bounce back from the pandemic. They had uh, a tough year last year, Revenue declined considerably, and they ended up with a loss of about $15 million on about $407 million of revenue. The year before, uh, they had almost $689 million of revenue, and they had $118 million in income. So that just gives you an idea of the trajectory that has uh, they've been subject to during COVID. But people are going to come back to the gyms, and as the U.S. opens up, it looks like we're on track to to really get through this. And and as I like to say, put COVID in the rearview mirror. People are going to come back, but adding this layer to it will open up their uh, membership to to people who might not have considered having a Planet Fitness membership. So I like this, and I think getting in on the subscription angle partnerships, all of that is good long-term for their business. This is something that, again, there's certain stocks in this industry which are easy to overlook because they're very familiar and they might be small. Or you might think that their business models from yesterday, we were talking about Lululemon at the beginning of the show and how they've transformed. And Planet Fitness seems to be sort of like a Lululemon to me. They're a company that's been around, they've had their ups and downs, but they're trying some innovative ways to grab new subscriptions and to make people more loyal. So I think it's a great one to put on the radar screen. I'm eager to see how it will perform over the next year or so as a lot of people, not Emily, who likes to stay indoors, (laughs) but other people like her boyfriend want to get out 
and get back in the gym and experience fitness in that manner. Well, I know we didn't put together today's show to be a full basket of of at-home or fitness companies really in general. Uh, we were just talking about some businesses that we like that play in the industry. But I, I do think when I look at it, I think it's around five businesses that we talked about today, maybe, yeah, five, five, six. Uh, when I look at these businesses, I like them all, actually. I feel like after talking with you, I, I kind of want to go out and buy all of these businesses if I don't already own them. Uh, because, yeah, it is interesting, right? You're have, seeing a very real trend that's happening in the market today. And all of these businesses have some unique way of tackling that market. So I know we didn't intend for it to be a basket, but I think this could be a basket. We might have talked ourselves into it because we realized there's this whole technology angle that's growing. There's the subscription angle, which is growing and a huge interest in getting fit, which the pandemic may have started, but I think people are going to keep going as they realize how fun it is to be healthy. I I need to, as I said, get back into that frame of mind myself. So hmm, maybe we'll, let's do this. Emily, either way, let's revisit this one at the end of this year, because we have another basket that we actually mapped out in more formal terms in January. When we revisit that shopping, we called it the shopping basket. We'll add this one in just to see how it did. (laughs) That sounds great. And we'll see if my Nordic track is just a clothes hanger by that point. (laughs) All right. Well, this was a lot of fun. Thank you for having me, Emily, as always. This is great joy. Thanks, Asit. Listeners, that does it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions, you can shoot us an email at industryfocus at fool.com or tweet at us at MF Industry Focus. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against any stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Tim Sparks for his work behind the screen today. For Asit Sharma, I'm Emily Flippin. Thanks for listening and Fool on! <laughs>